The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is brought to you by Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility and by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, Green Mountain Power, Concept 2, Norwich Solar Technologies, The Alchemist Brewery, Let's Grow Kids, UVM Medical Center, and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. We're spending the next half hour with uh, Vermont Senate President Pro Tem Tim Ash. Ash holds degrees from the University of Vermont and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He was for eight years a developer of affordable housing in the Burlington area. He's served on the staff of Congressman Bernie Sanders. Uh, he has been the president pro tem in the Vermont Senate since 2016. He recently announced that he is running for lieutenant governor. We spoke this morning at his office in the State House. Senate President Pro Tem Tim Ash, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, David. What do you see as the biggest issue facing Vermont right now, the biggest challenge? Well, it's hard to say just one because we have many challenges, but uh, I think overall we need to continue our work to build an economy that emphasizes the strengths of Vermont, uh, doing well by doing good taking care of the environment, taking care of the workforce itself, uh, and focusing on that triple bottom line. And that plays out in the Statehouse in a variety of policies, including increasing the minimum wage, which I hope we're on the cusp of doing, Um, paid family leave, which of course fell just short but isn't an issue that's just going to go away, but also focusing on fighting climate change in ways that help uh, Vermont businesses um, moving forward with reduced costs while fighting uh, harmful car- carbon emissions. Um, but to me, that's the big issue, and it informs everything else in terms of housing prices, in terms of cost of living, is we need to continue to strengthen um, uh, that Vermont economy from both sides, from both the employer and employee side. So from the legislative side, what piece of legislation or initiative do you think can make the biggest impact on the issues you're describing from worker shortages to climate change to, well, we can go on. Yeah, I I don't know that there's a single silver bullet, but I'll, I'll say, you know, three things that I think are really key. I think increasing the minimum wage is a foundational issue because you will immediately increase over the next two years the income of 40,000 people who right now work, many of them full-time, many of them uh, with kids, and who are receiving pay that just no one believes is an acceptable amount for an adult to live on in this day and age in Vermont or anywhere else. So to me, that's a foundational issue. It raises the bar for tens of thousands of households, um, which will help the Vermont economy. I think on the housing side, there is no, again, silver bullet there, but continuing to increase the supply of housing that's not just the classic subsidized affordable housing, but housing that is affordable to people who might not qualify for government programs. And we've had some initiatives which have been very promising, even though they haven't received much fanfare. Through the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, we created a down payment assistance program, which has now helped more than um, 1,000 people in about 170 Vermont towns buy their first home. And I think building on 
strategies like that can make the promise of uh, home ownership more realistic for younger households in particular, but frankly, um, households of all ages. Student debt is, I think, the third one that I would describe. And we've got committees in the Senate and House trying to figure out how we tackle this really on a broad basis so that all students can see a path to um, financial viability living in Vermont um, with what has become a crushing debt load uh, on average, but then also thinking about more targeted approaches for fields for which we have um, very serious shortages. Some of them are for positions that don't require advanced degrees or a tremendous amount of skills going in. Uh, some of them require very specialized expertise like child psychiatry. And so thinking about ways that we can drive down the um, student loan debt for people in both the broad categories, but also in more narrow, um, you know, crisis situations, I think are, are part of the mix. So some of these solutions you're talking about uh, get to the politics of the current moment we're in. So <clears throat> paid family leave, passed by the House, passed by the Senate, vetoed by the governor, and the House fails to override the veto by one vote. We're now on Wednesday. Away, uh, we have a similar situation uh, with minimum wage, passed by the House and Senate, vetoed by the governor, uncertain whether there are the votes in the House to override. What is the fallout from failing, being unable to override the governor's veto on paid family leave? Well, I hope the first analysis that um, voters uh, will apply to the situation is, why is the governor vetoing these bills? Um, it's very easy once the governor vetoes it to quickly turn to the legislature and say, will they or will they not veto? But take the minimum wage bill, um, the VPR poll, and not that we run everything around here by polls, but it confirmed what most of us have known. 74%, I believe I have that number right, believe that we should go to $12.55 an hour with the minimum wage or more. And so, you know, the governor has to reckon with why he would veto and hold back 40,000 people's wages, including for people who work full-time at minimum wage, $5,000 of total income gains that he is going to prevent for them over the next two years. So, you know, the House failing by one vote to override the paid leave bill, it's a disappointment. There's just no question about it. Um, but one of the things with this governor has been that from a legislative point of view, it's really turned the whole process on its head. With Governor Douglas or Governor Shumlin, typically we'd say, okay, we both agree on the ultimate goal. Uh, let's each work, maybe have to make concessions so that we can find a path that we can live with um, some kind of compromise so that we can achieve that shared goal. Um, but with this governor, it's effectively governing by either veto or veto threat, which means we don't know if the governor will sign a minimum wage at all, even if it was a penny, because we get no indication. And so you don't have that back and forth between the legislative and executive branch, which means that most constituents don't, might not appreciate that when we're looking at bills here, it used to be you needed to get 16 votes in the Senate or 76 in the House. And if you got in the 80s or 90s, you were really doing well. It meant it had really overwhelming support. But on all the big issues now, the calculus is, is, seems to have shifted, and that's at the governor's um, sort of doorstop, really, that what he's saying is, I'll wait to see if they get 100 votes before I even engage. And that is, uh, it's not a great way to govern. 
and, um, and, and has made the challenge of, of the legislature all that much greater. Do you think the uh, there will be enough votes to override the minimum wage veto? Well, we we overrode the governor's veto twenty four to six in the Senate, and I was thinking about it um, as I drove home that day. I think it was only the third time I have ever seen a gubernatorial veto overridden in my twelve years in the Senate. Um, the first two were under Governor Douglas, marriage equality. And the governor's uh, veto of the 2009 budget, which was overridden very narrowly. I think this was maybe only the third time in 12 years. The House is very close, and I am confident um, that they can get it over the finish line, especially as several of the House members who um, had voted no the first time around have said that they view this as a second vote that they're going to think about in a different light, if you will. So... My hope is that they appreciate that with such overwhelming public support, the desperate need to get more money in people's pockets who are doing everything society has asked of them, showing up for work, taking care of their families, that uh, we can't leave them you know, scraping and scrapping to get by on $11.96 or $10.96, which is today's minimum wage. So I think they can get over the hump. It's obviously a tough task uh, for the speaker. Um, you know, I got to deal with 30 people. I don't know how she deals with 150, but I think they can get there. Last year, the issue of paid family leave kind of foundered at the end of the session in disagreements between the House and Senate. What has changed in that relationship? Um, you know, I think each year um, the House and Senate committees and House and Senate leadership, myself included, are improving our relationships with one another. So probably the communication is just a little bit stronger, but. I think, you know, when I look back at the last week or two of the session, um, and we had had a very successful session up until then, um, it's probably not the best time to be facing the most challenging negotiations. Um, We had three senators working with three House members on both the paid family leave and minimum wage bills, and they're under so much stress while they're also keeping track of all the other things they have to vote on. We're also in the back of our minds saying it's not just good enough to have a compromise agreement that gets a majority. Knowing the governor's potential veto, we're having to add that extra variable in there about how do we not just have a compromise, but one that might be able to get 100 votes. And what was a little bit lost as a result of that you know, commotion at the end of last year was the year before we had passed both the minimum wage and paid family leave bill. Um, the governor, of course, vetoed those ones. So it made it, it put it in a, a more difficult context. And I think um, the cooling off period, if you will, um, after we adjourned, before we came back, just let everyone hit a reset button. So everyone was fresher to the task. And um, it's been really great to see how collegial, collaborative House and Senate committees and um, both parties have been working together this year. If you're just tuning in, we're uh, talking today on the Vermont Conversation with Senate President Pro Tem Tim Ash. Uh, Governor Scott, uh, climate change is a big item on the agenda. The House is advancing a global warming bill. I forget the exact name of it. Um, Governor Scott is also saying we have to take action on climate change and insists that he is. Uh, He's talking about electric vehicle incentives. But he has uh, been critical of the uh, the 
Democrats and progressives in the state house saying accusing them of focusing on taxes and deadlines instead of making a plan and uh, saying recently that uh, the Democrats had uh, made no had taken no action at all. How do you respond? I don't know what type of statement that is. It, it seems not grounded in the reality I inhabit here. Um, you know, Montpelier sometimes does feel like an alternative reality. And I think in this instance, um, the governor's statement might prove that. I, I can't quite get my head around that statement. Um, the governor has, as, as has the legislature, articulated our desire to fulfill the Paris climate goals, which jurisdictions, states, countries have been uh, scrambling to resuscitate after President Trump's withdrawal of the United States. And and the governor has said he supports trying to meet the state's energy plan goals. And what we have said in the legislature is you can't just say you support the concept of meeting stricter environmental targets, uh, reducing emissions, just saying it doesn't get it done. You have to actually take steps. So working with the administration last year and the year before, yes, we have made some inroads in terms of incentives to get people into electric vehicles, to get people into other vehicles that might not be electric but are high efficiency. The um, build out of um, charging stations across the state, all that's very positive. But when you've only got 3,000 or so electric cars on the road, it raises the fundamental question, is that really the way you're going to drive um, the types of emission reductions that need to happen? So where the legislature this year has been focused is on pushing uh, our utilities to produce more or purchase more local clean energy to accelerate the speed at which they meet 100 uh, percent clean energy goals and looking to join forces with other states in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic region on a regional transportation initiative that would effectively guarantee a reduction of transportation-related emissions. We're not, excuse me, hearing much from the governor about support for those, and I think it's precisely because those are action steps. And it is very easy to talk the talk, but then you got to walk the walk, and that's what we've been trying to do here. <clears throat> The uh, there was an article in a, the Economist recently that has been getting um, a surprising amount of play. It has made the claim that Vermont has seen the lowest wage growth in the U.S. over the past decade, and the Economist blames out of control regulation. I should point out there, in since that article has come out, other articles have called us one of the best places to live for seniors. So. Um, I don't want to attach too much to this, but you might as well respond to it since it's in the air. Yeah, I mean, The, the Economist, which I read from time to time, mostly because it has wonderful obituaries, um, is a uh, publication not without its own political leanings, um, which have been uh, in support, frankly, of free trade deals, which have decimated manufacturing and really screwed over communities throughout Vermont. Go to many communities where a high school diploma used to be good enough to work in a factory and wonder why those factories were put under pressure and forced to move to Mexico or China. Well, that was because of policies supported by institutions like The Economist magazine, which believed that corporate profits uh, of the companies that own these manufacturing sites were more important than the communities uh, where the people who'd for decades been loyal to those companies lived and worked. So 
they leave out those uh, small matters about uh, the global economy, um, their own advocacy for uh, the pressure it's put the communities uh, and states like Vermont under. So are, does Vermont have challenges? Yes. I mean, there's, you'd be naive to say, or I'd be naive to say that we don't have our challenges. But the idea that it's because of any single policy that Vermont has is ridiculous. Um, we are in the process of modernizing our housing development regulations, Act 250. So um, we're trying to recognize that the world changes over time. And so it's not about undermining the environment by making changes. It's about reflecting modern development patterns and trends and cost, um, the cost side of things. You know, we also are working on more foundational issues uh, that will help all employers. And that's why when The Economist or any other publication cherry picks things to make Vermont seem like a terrible place to be, um, they don't really emphasize things that are breaking our way. Um, unemployment insurance tax payments going down tens of millions of dollars, which benefits all Vermont employers who have employees. Workers' comp rates going down double premiums, going down double digits this year. The third year in a row, we're seeing reductions. So now it's about a 30% total reduction for all businesses, on average, uh, who are paying into the workers' comp system. You know, these are things that... It's not like some legislator should take credit for it. The governor shouldn't take credit for it, but we should all celebrate it because it's a reduction of expenses for people. But as you say, depending on the philosophical leaning, you can find whatever you want when you cherry pick data. And the truth is Vermont has its challenges, but it's a wonderful place to be. We should accentuate the positive here and invest in the things that are really the hallmark of what makes Vermont a great place, as I say. We have businesses throughout the state who their entire mission is not just profit, although that's very important to them, but it's also taking care of their workforce and protecting the environment. Those are the kinds of things that a state like Vermont already has sort of an inherent brand advantage there. Sometimes maybe it's overstated. I believe that you know, working with the governor, this governor or any other one, we should be double de- doubling down on that culture, really strengthening that network um, of employers who really focus on that triple bottom line. And that's something that the economist can't see in a statistic. I was talking with some legislators uh, last night who were observing that the average age of the Senate Uh, First of all, they were singling you out as an example of the youth in the Senate. I think you're in your 40s. Um, And that when you depart, since you're running for lieutenant governor, the average age will go even higher. Uh, That the average age is something like in the 70s. In the House, it's in the 60s. Um, And, of course, the number of people of color in these bodies is uh, you can count on one hand. How How do you change that? How do you get the legislature to look more like Vermont? I think that there is one simple solution that the legislature is unlikely to propose itself, which is increasing the pay while people are here in the legislature. And legislators are terrified of appearing like they're padding their pockets. Um, But then voters look and say, why do we have a legislature that doesn't look like the state that the people that they represent? And how I mean, you've got an older demographic because they're retired and so they have the ability to be here. You've got some people in the, I I don't know, in the in-between ages who, you know, maybe because of their particular financial situation at home are able to be here. And then you've got some people on the younger end like me who have made a lot of sacrifices and uh, figured out a way to make it work. 
but I think the scarcity of people under the age of 50, as you know, when you look at the House and Senate, probably speaks volumes about the financial ability of people to be here. It's just you lose income to be here. And I'm not suggesting that people should get rich here. It should not be something that people do to make money. But we should not have it be uh, a situation where where people from a broad cross-section of um, our state can't find a way to make it work. And I don't think it's because employers aren't willing to give the people the time off. I think it's because the drop in income makes it hard for people to pay the bill. So I would hope that, um, and you know, I've, I don't, I haven't had a direct conversation with the governor, but I think moving forward, it would take a governor perhaps to put in his or her budget, um, an increase in legislative pay or proposed statutory change. And what is the current legislative pay? Uh, you know, it's, it's a little, uh, it's slightly complicated because there's a salary plus per diems, which have been, I think the way to you know, add to the to the salary, but I think the average legislator probably at the end of the year totals up somewhere in the twenty five thousand dollar range. So, when people talk about politics right now, by and large, they're not talking about Vermont politics. Ninety five percent of the political oxygen is taken up by what is going on nationally. What is the Trump effect, as I think of it, uh, on Vermont? And you can define that however you like. Well, I think I would say that 99%, not 95, I would go even higher, probably 99% of the oxygen is sucked out by President Trump. And it is really changed the dynamic, actually, because it means, and it's happening at the same time that daily newspapers have essentially evaporated, that... You know, most Vermonters, even the ones who would describe themselves as following political events and public events, um, have a lot less understanding or or, um, day-to-day knowledge of what's going on in Montpelier than they would have 10, 15 years ago. It's a real, that's a challenge, which means that legislators resort to social media, which exacerbates this idea that people are only hearing from their um, social media bubbles or um, narrow focused interests. Um, You know, the good news is, so far, the worst elements of President Trump's denigration of government and hostility to people who don't agree with him has not really translated into the Vermont political culture. Um, I'm sure there are members of the House. I have not yet met a member of the Senate, although there might be one who support President Trump. But but we just we continue to operate here in a manner that doesn't have that demoralizing effect that makes people hate the idea of running for office. And I've had to remind the Senate that it's not an accident. You have to actually maintain that culture. And in the Senate, we do that by making sure there's always at least one Republican chair, even though they're in an extreme minority, because the symbolism of that is really powerful. It says, we care what you think, even though you're in the minority. And, um, I think that maybe is what has been a safeguard against the worst of Trumpism is that I think most legislators care what other people think who don't don't necessarily agree with them. And that might sound like a simple statement, but I've talked to legislators in other states where if you're not with the team, you're the enemy. Who cares what they think? And finally, um, we can't end without noting your own uh, political plans, running for lieutenant governor. 
you're in a position as the president pro tem of the Senate. You can move big ideas and big initiatives uh, within certain parameters. You can't really do that as lieutenant governor. Why try? To, why trade one job for the other if you were have, end up winning as lieutenant governor? Why run? Well, it's really twofold. I mean, the, the first, I'd say the, the reason why the lieutenant governor job is attractive is over the last four years as the president of the Senate, um, maybe the thing I've enjoyed the most is circling the state on particular issues, then coming back to Montpelier and basically handing off the platform that I sort of picked up on from people out there in the trenches and handing off to legislative committees to actually make uh, progress with. And we've done that on mental health issues, on primary care and dental care, on getting young people youth employment opportunities, and a variety of other things. And one of the freedoms of lieutenant governor is effectively to be able to do that as the primary job is getting out there into communities, hearing directly from the people who take on these big public challenges, be able to speak with a voice that's a little bit broader um, about shifting the way we handle some of our issues. Uh, so that's what I find so appealing about the lieutenant governor job. As far as leaving the Senate, I have to confess, I mean, it's a bittersweet feeling. I have really put my heart and soul into this place uh, in the different roles I've played over the years. But I've also always said that there's a moment where, you know, your your Roman Campbell Roman Candle had stopped uh, shooting sparks, and I didn't want to be someone who felt like I'd outlasted the time where I was really um, uh, at my best self there. And I've had a great run. I've been delighted to work with so many wonderful people in the Senate and also with people in the House. But um, you know, it's, sometimes it's time for someone else to take over that job, and it's not mine. It's the people's you know office here and. Um, so I, I made the decision I'm not going to stay just because I can. Okay. Well, Senate President Pro Tem Tim Ash, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. Thank you so much, David. And that does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vermontconversation.com. Tune in next Wednesday at 1 for another Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. The Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable child care in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit.